take your Bible and turn with me. We're working our way through First uh, Timothy. And uh, if you're a guest with us, that's what we're doing. We're, we take a book of the Bible and we work our way through it. And we've been in First Timothy uh, this whole year. And we've reached chapter 6. And uh, in chapter 6, the, the first section is uh, verses 1 and 2. So on page 1413, if you're using one of our Bibles. And I'll read that for us. <clears throat> it says, All who are under the yoke of, as slaves are to rego- regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles. Well, it's interesting as we come here, we come to this passage and because it's our practice to uh, to go through a book of the Bible and to deal with whatever is there, we come to the issue here of of Paul speaking to slaves. And uh, it kind of reminds me of uh, the story I heard of a young man just came out of seminary, wanted to be a preacher, and he got called to a church in South Dakota. And he wanted to make sure that he he gave them the impression that he was not going to shirk away from the hard issues he was going to talk about sins so his first sermon was on the evils of breaching international ocean fishing treaties that pertain to whales in south dakota he was yeah so i i feel a little bit like okay here we are at a passage that deals with slavery and we don't have slavery now there is slavery in the world there still is slavery but um Nothing like it was in Paul's day. And you, we're going to look at this and we're going to um, seek to see what God is saying. But you might be surprised at how it actually does apply to our lives. So I ask that you would uh, hang in there with me as, you, um, as we go through this passage. You may remember, if you've been here longer, you know, we've, we've worked through the book of Ephesians and we worked through the book of Colossians. And in both of those places... The issue of slavery and and Paul speaking to slaves comes up. And in both of those times, I bounced off of it and applied what he was saying to slaves to us in the workplace as employers and employees. And that's a right application. But I didn't actually take the time in either of those cases to actually look at how was the scripture speaking about slavery because, again, I didn't want to be like the South Dakota pastor speaking about whales. But, but uh, here we are a third time, so now I'm going to just hit it head on. But, again, I believe that it may have more uh, application to your life than you would at first think. Slavery in the Roman Empire was, a, was all across the board. It was an integral part of the society. Uh, some historians suggests that at one point, even in the city of Rome, um, 40% of the population of Rome was at one time a slave. They were slaves. So that would be, you know, four out of every 10 people you meet during the day are actually slaves. Slavery was uh, completely integrated into the life of the Roman Empire. It was, it was the way things were. 
But slaves had various roles in the Roman Empire. Some slaves were teachers. Some were tutors. Some were nannies. Some were clerks and accountants. Others were soldiers. Then we know about those that were gladiators. And then there were many who did menial menial labor type work. Many were cruelly treated. Uh, Others were not so cruelly treated, um, but they were still property of the owner. Um, There were laws being passed eventually in the Roman Empire to try to prevent some inhumane treatment of slaves. But still, no matter how, how well your master may have treated you if you were a slave, you were still uh, his property. There was, in Paul's day, a growing practice, though, of allowing uh, slaves to work themselves into freedom. So there was more and more, there were more and more slaves becoming set free by their owners. And actually, there were some stories of some slaves who learned to trade while a slave were set free and eventually became more prosperous than their previous owner. But those were stories, although they happened, they were, they were not in any way the majority. And there was a tremendous inhumane treatment of people. And in, in essence, the, the, great, the great evil of slavery is, is that the person is no longer being treated as a person. They're being treated as property. They're a non-person. And that's not right. And if, if um, slavery is not right, if it's evil, why didn't, we might ask, why didn't Paul speak out against it more forcefully? Um, we look at this passage here in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6, and he's saying, you see there in the first phrase, all who are under the yoke as slaves, so he's He's speaking about slavery as being something that's negative. You're under the yoke. That word yoke, that's a yoke is something that's used on an animal. It's something that makes you labor. And so there are people who are in this bad situation. And we probably with our American eyes and the way we think, we, we're, we're thinking to Paul, Paul, why don't you just tell the master to let their Slaves free. Why don't you just say emancipate the slaves? Why do you talk the way you talk? It's a very interesting question. And it reminds me of Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 that says, For my thoughts, God is speaking, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God doesn't always say and do what we expect. He is God and we are not. And I would wonder if we would be willing to accept that the way in which we address issues is not always the way that God chooses to do so. One of our issues is that we tend to look at problems and problems in society and approach them from a position or a mentality of power. We're, we're living in the year 2010 and, and more than all, more than when we're living, we're 
Look at who we are. We're Americans, right? Right. Yeah. Americans, we just, if we don't like it, we just, we change it, right? If we don't like it this way, we change it. Or if we can't change it, we say, well, nuts on you, and I'm going to go do it myself over here. That's, what we, that's just the way we live. I mean, we, uh, we fought a war to get rid of England. All the rest of them, all those wimps out there, they just kind of did it diplomatically, you know, or lived long enough to have, see Britain change their mind. Not us, buddy. We fought a war to get them off of us. So we're Americans, and we tend, as Christians who are Americans, we tend to look at the problems in our society and think of addressing those problems from a position of power. How can we exert power to change it? You might be starting to sense that there may be a lesson in this passage for us about the, the, the presence of things in our own culture that are wrong. How, will we, how do we think about changing them versus how does God go about changing them? This evil of slavery was everywhere in their culture. And it was wrong. How, how did God speak about it to change it? Well, he, we've got to remember that the Christians of that day had no power. They, they were in no position of power whatsoever. They themselves were illegals. They were, they were little churches that met in people's homes, little house churches of people here and there scattered through different villages and in the cities. And they themselves were suffering persecution. Different waves of persecution would come their way depending on who the emperor was and, and in the, what region of the Roman Empire they lived in. But they were illegals. They were worshiping the wrong way. They wouldn't acknowledge Caesar as God. They wouldn't bow the knee to him. And, and in Corinthians, Paul says, there are not many of you noble, not many of you wise. Most of you in the church are not in any position of power. You certainly didn't have the moral majority to vote out. Oh, wait a minute. They didn't have elections back then. There was no power, my friends. No power whatsoever that they had in terms of human power. And yet, this issue of slavery was spoken about by God in his word, and he used the Apostle Paul in this. And I hope that I can express to you how amazing it was that Paul, what it was that Paul did, and how amazing it was, would have looked in the first century eyes. There are seven ways in which Paul dealt with slavery. I'm going to run through these quickly. Number one, he dealt with slavery by his example of speaking to and relating to the slaves. Just the fact, try to picture this. You're living in, a, in, a, in an empire that has slavery everywhere. Four out of every ten of your neighbors are slaves. And they're owned by somebody else. Um, and many of them are mistreated and, and, and they're, they're just... They're just furniture. They're just property. But in this little home church, you go in there to worship and there's, there might be 30, 40 people and they're all sitting around. And then someone says, the Apostle Paul's letter came. 
We're going to read the letter to you. And you begin to read and, and Paul speaks that, so they're reading, which is the word of God. And, and the letter Paul speaks to everyone and then he speaks to husbands and then he speaks to wives and then he speaks to parents and then he speaks to children and then he speaks to slaves. It's unbelievable. He actually talks to them. He speaks to them as equals. He speaks to them as people that are as worthy of being spoken to as then he eventually he speaks to the masters. He does this in Ephesians and Colossians, uh, Corinthians. He speaks to slaves over and over again. Paul just talks to them as people who are just as equal as everyone else. The mere fact that he addresses them in his epistles is saying something to the first century hearer. Secondly, he deals with slavery by what he says about what slavery does not mean in regard to belief in Christ. That was kind of a crazy sentence, but he, Paul speaks to slaves about what, it, what their slavery doesn't mean. In Galatians three twenty-six, it says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, All of you, he's speaking to you're all sons of God. You're all children of God through faith in Christ. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. You know, he's used that word all again, all of you. And then he goes on, he says, for there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He's saying it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. It's in, by faith you have been reconciled to God, faith in Christ. And if you are a Jew or not a Jew, amazing. All that history, 2,000 years of history of redemptive working of God through the people of Israel now comes to the place where Paul is now saying that doesn't matter anymore. If you're a Jew or you're not a Jew, it makes no difference. All of you are reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? You find new life in him. And if that wasn't as as amazing enough, he then says, and if you're a slave or you're free, it doesn't matter. Your slavery doesn't matter in terms of being reconciled with God. That's an earth-shaking statement. Thirdly, he deals with slavery by his words to slaves. He told them, get free if you can. In legal ways, but get free. In 1 Corinthians seven twenty-one, he says, Were you called, meaning called into faith to Christ, were you called while a slave? Don't worry about it. But if you were able also to become free, rather do that. So when Paul was speaking to slaves, he's saying to them, are you able to get free? Then get free. Get free. That's, that's better. Fourth, um, he deals with slavery by his absence of appealing to the will of God for the existence of slavery. This is important. In various of his epistles, he would speak to different groups, and, and especially he, he's speaking to the family, husbands and wives, And he speaks to parents and children. And then he'll speak to masters and slaves. 
For, for husbands and wives, the Apostle Paul always appealed back to Genesis and the creation and what you could learn from the Old Testament about the husband and wife. He appealed to the will of God. In, in parents and children, he would appeal back to the fifth commandment among the Ten Commandments that deals with honor your father and your mother. So he would appeal to the word of God and the will of God. And then he'd arrive to slaves and free and he wouldn't say anything. That silence is deafening. You and I miss it because we think he's supposed to be forming a, a pack and lobby in Washington, D.C. to deal, to do away with slavery. But we miss the enormity of the silence. He says nothing. Because he doesn't believe it is the will of God. So it's, it's that blank that screams out for our attention. Another way that Paul dealt with slavery is by his condemnation. <laughs> I bet you didn't think about this. His condemnation of kidnapping. Look in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Flip back to chapter 1 verse 10. He's in a list here of lawless and rebellious behavior. And in verse 11, after the list, he says, uh, well, in, at the end of verse 10, it's all of these things are contrary to sound teaching. And then in 11, they're, they're contrary to the gospel. But in the beginning of verse 10, he says, and we're coming into the middle of the list, but it says, and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers. Now, now, if you have an NIV Bible, it actually says slave traders. Because the idea is that, well, a person can be kidnapped for various reasons, but in that setting, in those days, that's mainly why people were stolen. They were stolen in order to be sold as slaves. And so people wonder, do we, do we translate it kidnapping or do we translate it slave traders? Well, the point is the same. And so Paul has already spoken right there and said, to be one who takes another person, as property is wrong and it's contrary to the gospel. So he said that. Now, sixthly, another way in which Paul deals with slavery is by his instructions to slaves and the masters. We see it, like I've mentioned already, in Ephesians and Colossians, also in Titus. He's telling the slaves to serve there and and to work and to serve their master with a focus not just on the master but on the lord christ that they serve christ in what in when they're serving their master that their work itself is going to be work for christ so work hard and be honest and honor whoever is above you and do things that are right and then uh then he turns, especially in Ephesians 6, we won't go there right now, but he, he turns to the, to the masters and says, now likewise, do the same for them. So he said, he said to the slaves, you live this way. You work your heart out and you do it for Christ and you respect the one that is above you. And then he turns to the masters and says, and you do the same thing for them. What? Masters are supposed to treat the slaves the way the slaves are supposed to treat the masters? Do you realize how revolutionary that is? How unbelievably radical this is to the first century ears? What? 
You're telling, in, in one passage, he says, treat them with justice and fairness. What? Masters are to treat slaves with justice? What justice do they have anyway? The instructions that Paul gave to slaves and slave holders was radical. Treat each other right, he says. And then seventhly, the seventh way that Paul dealt with slavery was that he wrote a whole letter about it in the Bible. And that's what the word, the, the Philemon, you want to turn there. It's on, uh, it's just a little bit past. You go first, second Timothy, Titus, and then Philemon, a little short book of the Bible. When we say that there are 66 books in the Bible, one of them is about slavery. Yes, it touches on, on other issues, but, but what it is, it's, 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 we see in this book the way the Apostle Paul takes, by the inspiration of the Spirit, takes the truth of the gospel and deals with a slave and a slave owner. Don't let anybody say and don't let yourself believe that the Bible was somehow silent on the greatest evil of its day. If this book wasn't there, we would be saying there's 65 books in the Bible. Okay? One of them is about slavery. God did speak to that. But he did it in a way that you and I weren't expecting. What happens is, Paul, he's a prisoner. And um, he winds up meeting this guy named Onesimus. Onesimus is a runaway slave. He had run away from his slave owner, whose name was Philemon. And now, somehow, we don't know all the details. It appears, though, the, that the Apostle Paul led the slave, Onesimus, to Christ. And then Onesimus stays there with Paul in his imprisonment, which is probably a, some kind of house, house arrest. So this slave is now ministering to and helping Paul, and Paul is discipling him and helping him grow. And then it comes to the point where Paul says, you know what, you're going you're gonna to have to go back. You're going to have to deal with the fact that you've broken the law and you've run away. You've run away from this slave owner who is a Christian, by the way. So the slave owner, Philemon, is a Christian. Paul knows, Paul knows him. So he sends, Paul takes the slave, Onesimus, and he writes a letter to Onesimus's master. And he gives it to Onesimus, says, now you go on back to Philemon. Go ahead. Which means... He's putting himself back in slavery. He says, you go. But he goes with this letter, and I'm going to start at verse 10. Let me, let me just read part of it to you. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus. Now, you've got you to gotta picture. Here's, here's Philemon. He's just working one day, and his, his runaway slave shows up. I wonder what he feels. You know, that rascal. <laughs> And he comes up to him looking repentant and everything. And he says, I have a letter here. It's from the Apostle Paul. <laughs> it's like, oh. <laughs> and one thing leads to another. It'd be a great movie. Somebody ought to make a movie out of this. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, meaning he ran away. He wasn't 
he was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I've sent him back to you in person. That is, I'm sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything, so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he's wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it, not to mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. This is, I mean, he's laying it on him. He's saying, I'm not going to, I'm not as the apostle, I'm not going to command you to do anything. I'm not going to force you to do this. But just, he's a brother now. You just treat him. Well, I'll tell you what, just treat him as you'd treat me. <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to enslave the Apostle Paul. That's what Philemon is thinking. Paul has done, he's used, he's used his influence to say, I'm not going to compel you, which is what we as Americans from our mentality of operating from power, that's what we would want. But he doesn't do that. He's not an American speaking from power. He's, he's in jail. And he says, he says, He makes every argument he can to say, treat him as he is. Treat him as a brother. Treat him as you would treat me. This is what it means. This is what Christianity means. Maybe God in his sovereignty had him run away just so he would get saved. But now he's saved. What are you going to do with him? And Philemon, I think, we don't know actually, but we have this letter. But Philemon, I believe, set him free. And probably sent him back to Paul and said, you minister to him. And I'm writing a letter back to Paul. And he probably wrote, you don't owe me anything. And sent it back. So by Paul's example of speaking to and relating to slaves, by what he says about uh, that how slavery has nothing to do with how you come to faith, by his words to slave and his slaves and his encouragement to them to get free if they could, by his absence of appealing to the will of God or the Old Testament in any way for slavery, by his condemnation of kidnapping, by his instructions and what his instructions were to slaves and masters, and by the book of Philemon, Paul, by the, under the inspiration of the Spirit, dismantles the very heart of slavery. One Bible scholar, Hendrickson, said it this way. Paul's way toward a solution, well, it was, it was Paul, but also God's way, toward a solution commends itself by reason of its evident wisdom. He advocated neither outright revolt by the slaves nor the continuation of the status quo. He aimed to destroy the very essence of slavery. This method, though for a while maintaining slavery, 
in outward form was nevertheless the surest and most commendable way of working toward the final goal of complete abolition. Let the slave honor his master and let the master be kind to his slave. Let both bear in mind that with God there is no respect of persons. That was the principle. Thus, the ill will, dishonesty, and laziness of many slaves would be replaced by willing service, integrity, and industry. Thus, also, the cruelty and brutality of many masters would melt into kindness and love. The grace of Christ, working from within outward, which is ever the way of the kingdom of God, would become a penetrating leaven, tending to transform the whole lump. So you see, this is the way God worked and used his apostle in the face of this great evil in that society. Now I want us to look again at these two verses in chapter 6. So 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2. And when we look here, I I want to um, look at what we can glean for our lives from from this passage in terms of two responsibilities that we each hold, two motivations... And then I want to end with two thoughts about the workplace. Verse 1 says, All who are under the the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. You'll notice that in this verse, he's speaking to all of the slaves, and he's saying, Regard their masters as worthy of honor, so that their that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. In general, he's speaking to slaves here. He's speaking to all of them, but especially those whose masters are not Christians. Then in verse 2, he says, but those who have believers as their masters. So in verse 2, now he's narrowing the, the focus and he's saying, now I'm talking to you, you slaves whose masters are Christians, which is pretty amazing. So that they're in this house church, as you envision them sitting in the house or maybe in the backyard of somebody's house, worshiping together. There's masters and their own slaves, and they're all worshiping together. But they're also hearing this word. So you who have believing masters, don't in some, for some way, don't think, well, because they're believers, I won't work as hard. No, do it just the opposite. So they're speaking in that way. Two responsibilities that we gain from this. Number one, God wants me to respect everyone in my life. You see that in verse one, it says, regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. If if the Bible tells a slave whose master is not a Christian and who's probably abusing them, and he's telling that slave, honor that person, honor that person, then the Bible is telling us to honor everybody. Amen? We've got to to honor and give respect to everyone in our lives. And in verse 2 it says, we must and must not be disrespectful to them. We honor them because they are persons. For a, for a slave, there would be a, an interesting irony. For a slave who is a slave, so he's being treated as a non-person, for him to turn around and disrespect his master means that he is falling to the same problem that the master has. 
Now I'm not treating my master as being worthy of honor, just like he's not respecting me. But the Christian takes the high road, no matter what situation he or she are in, and, and, and treats everybody in this life or her life with honor and with respect because every person is created in the image of God. God wants me. God wants you to respect everyone in your life. Everyone. And the second responsibility is God wants me, God wants you to serve people with your life. You see that in verse 2. Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Serve people. Serve people with your life. Use your life to serve other people. See the job that you have as a way of serving other people and go at your job with that in mind. And then in whatever stage of life you're in, perhaps you're in retirement where you're not required to go to work every day, but you can use your life to serve other people. Use your life to serve people. That's what God wants us to do with our lives. But then there's two motivations in all of this. The first one we see in verse 1, and that is that I want those who are outside of Christ to be drawn to him. Look at verse 1 again. All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Why? says, so that the name of God and our doctrine or our teaching will not be spoken against. I want people outside of Christ to be drawn to Christ. That's why I honor everybody, even the boss that gives me trouble. Because that boss, I want him to, or her to come to Christ. So I want to behave towards that person in a way that gives that person no grounds for speaking evil about my doctrine, my teaching, and my God. Amen? I remember um, for a while when I was in the college town, I worked in a big apartment complex, and I was the painter. I was the painter. And this, we had over 300 apartments, and, there were, and we lived in a college town, so there was always a turnover of apartments. And I went to work every day and worked all day painting, and it never, it never let up. Every day I went in, there was, oh, well, there was a, a rule was that anytime anybody moved out of an apartment, we painted it before we put anybody else in. So I just rolled I rolled paint and memorized scripture. That's what I did all day long. I just, it was just, and I, man, I could paint, I could paint an apartment. It was great because they were unfurnished. I didn't have to mess with furniture. I went in there with my drop cloths and all day I just painted, painted and painted. Well, the boss, mm, he was a jerk. <laughs> yeah. He had one thing in mind, and that was money. He didn't care about me. He didn't care about any of the rest of us that worked in the maintenance staff. Everybody hated his guts. Um, and then there was me, Christian. I'm in the middle of this. The guy hates me. He doesn't care anything about me. He just wants me to paint a little bit faster than I'm painting, you know. And I'm painting fast, believe me. Um, and... Um, 
He gave us all a hard time. Didn't care if anybody quit. He, he just, he just, he wasn't a nice guy to work for. And I just prayed and I said, Lord, I, help me to love this guy. And help me to love this guy. And, and then there was also everybody around me too. I remember it was, it was exciting times. I got to share the gospel with this one guy and he was later uh, murdered. He was shot and killed. And so, you know, I hung out with some really nice guys. Yeah. But it was great. I mean, God had put me right in the middle of all that. And so one guy's getting shot and all this stuff's going on. But here I am in the middle. And I'm trying, though, toward the boss now. This is what I'm thinking of right now is I'm just trying, Lord, help me to honor this guy. Help me to respect this guy, like you say. Help me to love him. Help me to work hard. And I'm going to work hard for you. I'm going to paint these apartments for you, Lord. I'm not painting them for him. Well, I am, but I'm not. You're even above that. And I just painted and painted and tried my best. The months went on and on. And then it came to the point where I was going to leave there. And that was when I was going to leave to go to to seminary. And I remember the day when we're standing in the shops, all the guys are around, the ones that hadn't been shot yet. You know, they're all there. And... and, um, it was my last day at work, and I was over at the big sink washing out, washing uh, the rollers and stuff, and the boss comes in. Well, everybody kind of freezes up. You know, it gets real tense when the boss comes in there, and he was looking for me. He says, Cliff, and he walks up to me, and, and tears come out and start running down his face, and he hugs me, and he, and he cries. it was awkward because the rest of the guys are looking at me like what in the world and like i had an affinity to those guys because we had suffered together but here's this guy you know so i'm like hugging him and he's like you're like a son to me that's what he said you're like a son to me didn't give me a bonus or anything but yeah But I have to, I have to trust God that something was going on. You see that, and I'm not lifting myself up as the great example. It's just I know this story is that you see this motivation here is I want people outside of Christ to be drawn towards Christ. I want, I want the jerk that I work with to become a Christian jerk. And then I just thought of that right now. It wasn't in my notes. And then the jerk part drops off. Amen. Yeah, then, yeah, you, you, I want this, this person to come to Christ. That's more important than whether or not he or she makes my life uncomfortable. Amen. That's what's important. That's one of these great motivations. That's what verse 1 is talking about. Slaves, you got these masters. This is a bad situation, but you want them to come to Christ. That's your great motivation. So honor them and work hard and work hard for the Lord. And then the second second motivation is I want those inside of Christ to feel my care for them. That's in verse 2. Um, apparently there was some temptation here that some of the slaves, through a kind of convoluted type of uh, thinking, they thought, well, if my master's a Christian, then I don't have to work so hard. <laughs> and, and Paul is saying, no, no, now the one who's benefiting by your work is a Christian. So work harder, work harder for them. And so that the benefit goes to a brother. So he's saying, I want those who are inside of Christ to feel my care for them. And so it is with us. 
I want those outside of Christ to be drawn to Christ. I don't want to do anything in my life to keep that from happening. I want those who are inside of Christ to feel my care for them because that's the way it ought to be. And when those two motivations are working in my life, it can change, it can change the way I, uh, I live. It can change the workplace. Amen? It changes things when Christians are living that way in the midst of the workplace. And that leads me to my final two thoughts. I, I take this whole picture, which I know this is a kind of a different sermon than usual. But when we think about this and then we, how do we take all this and apply it to our lives? Our, our minds do go to the workplace. Our minds go to where we spend our time most of the, of the day working and where, um, the slave master can be easily transferred to the employer employee. And so I see here, number one, that in the workplace, as an employee, I must honor and work hard for my employer. I must work hard for my employer because behind and above my employer is the Lord. In Colossians 3, and again, if we could see this in the first century, eyes we'd see how radical this teaching is colossians 3 verse 22 let me read it in the few verses after it he says slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth not with external service as those who merely please men but with the sincerity of heart fearing the lord whatever you do do your work heartily as for the lord rather than for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. If Paul could tell slaves that it's the Lord Christ who you serve, then Paul tells every one of us who are employees, it's the Lord Christ that you serve. Amen? It's, you're serving, yes, your boss, but you're serving Christ in what you do. We need to see that. I, I told this story once, but I remember when I was working my way through college and um, I worked for a builder and we were building homes and they had, they had put the foundation around and we had built up on the house but hadn't poured the, the basement yet. And we had to dig a trench across the basement, probably for the drain or whatever. So I'm in there with a bunch of guys digging this trench and the boss drives up in his truck so everybody digs real hard and then and then he talks and then he gets in his truck and drives around the corner and everybody but me stops digging they all just stop you know they'd watch the car and i just kept digging and they're like what are you doing (laughs) the boss isn't here and i being a young whippersnapper i just said i don't work for him and i just kept digging and they're like You know, like, well, who do you, you know, they're looking for where's, like, what, what are you talking about? Who do you work for? As I work for Christ and he's here. So I just kept digging. Slaves, he says, do you work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men? And then he says something very interesting, because knowing that from the Lord, you'll receive the reward of the inheritance. God is watch. God is concerned with how you are working and what your work is. And it's all that all gets. And I don't understand it all, but that's all wrapped up in 
what happens in eternity and how God returns blessing on us. It's how we've worked as we lived here on this earth. So whatever else we glean from these first two verses in chapter 6, we, we see it as a challenge to us as in our work and in our lives, our motivation, our responsibility, but then in the workplace to work for Christ. And then secondly and lastly, we need to see ourselves and our presence in non-Christian settings as God's way of changing those aspects of the situation that are dishonoring to Christ. Now, I just said that and you all thought that was good, but let me say it again, okay? I want you to get upset with me here. You need to see yourself and your presence, not the politician, but your presence. You need to see your presence in non-Christian settings as God's way of changing those aspects of the situation that are dishonoring to Christ. You are the answer to this society's ills. You are the answer to this. Right where you are. God didn't have Paul paint signs down with slavery and go march up to the White House in Rome and go down with slavery and get Fox News to say down with slavery and form a a pack and run a a campaign. That isn't how slavery changed. Slavery changed with changed people rubbing shoulders with other people that weren't changed yet. With a life that's transformed by Christ. And they, these were people that honored everybody that they, that they saw, that were in their life. They served people and wanted them to feel their care for them. They're so radically different in every level of life that people finally said, what's up with you? And they said, let me tell you about Jesus. Amen. And finally, as the years went by and we lament the fact that it took, took too long. Society changed in such a way, and then there was a combination of those in power and those out of power, but it, wouldn't, it didn't start with those in power. The real change occurred because people had changed. It was like leaven that had, that had infected and spread through the whole, the whole lump of dough. Do you want to know one thing that bothers your pastor? Okay, you don't. So I'll just go on. Let's close. And this is going to bother some of you that this bothers me. I'm just going to tell you, one thing that bothers me is this. Every ele- I'm going to be careful how I say this. Every election cycle that comes by, there are people that come out of the woodwork, and they come to me and tell me who I'm supposed to tell you to vote for. Now, that, that bothers me. Now, it might, it's, but it bothers me for a reason that you, probably, you may not know. It doesn't bother me that people are, are involved and, and interested in elections. Of course we have to be involved in that. But those same people don't come out of the woodwork all the rest of the year and say, you know, Pastor, you should be telling us about how we should work. 
You know, you, you, you should be telling us about how we are the instruments of God's changing this society from a position of powerlessness. You see, you see, we Americans think we're going to change everything by getting Pat Toomey elected and somebody else elected and somebody else elected. And what bothers me about that is not that we're interested in politics, we should be, but that we have placed an inordinate amount of our hope in that. That isn't how God changed the evil of slavery. He changed the evil of slavery by people being radically changed in how they treated each other in the workplace. And that, my friend, is how the Lehigh Valley is going to change. It's by you being radically changed by Christ, rubbing shoulders with people in the workplace, approaching your work with a mindset different than I'm just going to make money, but with this work matters to God, and I've been put here by God, my motivations are different. And when, when the Lehigh Valley has people like that sprinkled through all the businesses and the workplaces and the schools, every part of the society in the Lehigh Valley, that is when the Lehigh Valley will change, no matter who's elected. I didn't hear an Amen. I know this is different. This is very different. And I want you to sense this. That God changes things from the powerless. Not necessarily from the powerful. And we always gravitate in our mind to the powerful. Friends, let's look at it like God looks at it. Amen? And I want you to realize that it's you that's going to change things. It's not the guy you voted for. Now, if I was speaking to a group of politicians, I'd be telling them how important their job is. Amen. And how important it is to be a Christian in their job. So I'm not discounting that, but I'm not talking to them. I'm talking to us. And my friend, this lesson about slavery challenges us to think again about what is God doing with my life Why has he put me where I am? What does he want to do through me? I'll tell you what he wants to do. He wants to change this planet. Amen. He wants to use you and me to just to just infiltrate everything with the gospel. He wants to use us so that people are just like there's like a magnet in us that's drawing them to Christ. But they don't even know what it is. But this is so interesting and different. What is it with you? I'll tell you what it is. It's Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's approach our jobs that way. Let's approach our life that way. And let's be motivated to see that outside people, people outside of Christ are drawn to him and people inside of Christ feel our care for them and then watch and see what God will do. Let's stand together and let's pray. Oh, Lord, I sense my inadequacy in trying to express what is in your word in a way that makes it clear and in a way that... um, challenges us to rethink and to change our own lives you have challenged my own life father i confess my own failure at times to speak to people outside of christ the way i ought to have and um we ask your forgiveness we we ask your forgiveness lord for not realizing what it is 
that you are doing in and through us. Use us, we pray, and um, change the Lehigh Valley because of us, because of you using us, not from power, but from powerlessness, but by the power of the Spirit in us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord bless.